Hello and welcome back to the Evidence-Based Education Podcast. My name is Jamie Scott and this episode is the third in our mini-series on the topic of collaboration. We've been following colleagues at Dulwich College International Schools on their journey in forming a collaboration network and along the way we've been speaking to various experts about the features and characteristics of effective teacher collaboration. In this episode, I speak to Dr. Jenny Donoghue, who is an author, a researcher and teacher educator, and also Kat Scutt, the Director of Education and Research at the Chartered College. But first, I speak to James McBlain. Hello, James. Hello, Jamie. So, James, you're in Abu Dhabi at the moment. Is that right? That's right. I am at the British School al Kabirat. Al-Kabira and um, um, through the Twitter sphere I, I hear that you're soon going to be moving over to Dubai to a new school. That's right yes so I've been uh, I've been at BSEC now for, for 14 years uh, this is my sixth year now as deputy head um, so I've been moving up the road moving to the north of the UAE uh, to join Heartland uh, which is a fantastic school relatively new uh, school in Dubai as head of secondary. Not far from the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world, is that right? That's right, not too far, and you can see it quite clearly from the school, actually. Very exciting. Well, so James, thank you for being on the podcast. And this all came about following the second episode of the podcast series that we released, the one with Dylan William and John Hattie. You made a, a positive comment on Twitter about the episode, but you also offered a suggestion in terms of broadening the conversation or the scope of uh, the discussion around collaboration. So we thought in the spirit of collaboration, we'd get you on the podcast to talk us through that suggestion. So do you want to tell us what your thoughts were? Yeah, so I I listened to the the podcast, obviously, and uh, it was absolutely fantastic. So this is a real area of interest of myself and, and a BSAC in terms of driving uh, a professional culture around collaboration and professional learning. So the podcast was really interesting. And and as I was listening to it, I was really intrigued by the the focus uh, around the the real practical element of why you're bringing teachers together to collaborate. And both uh, Hattie and Dylan William focused in on on really having a clear sense of purpose behind that collaboration mm-hmm. with a real focus on what is the impact uh, that teachers are having and what is the purpose of that collaboration. But as a, as a school leader, what it made me think about is how do you get to the point where you're having those laser sharp focus, real, really meaningful conversations. And I think what, what I was reflecting on is how you build up to, to get to that point. And I yeah. think John Hattie was was touching on and he made reference to teaching being quite isolating. He, he made reference uh, to elements of culture about what do teachers uh, talk to each other about um, without really, I think, getting to, to, to discuss more widely uh, the culture uh, in a school that enables you uh, to get staff talking to each other honestly, openly, without uh, sort of fears or concerns and, and building that trust, that culture that allows you you to get to that point when you're having those really meaningful conversations. 
So that really got me to think about the kind of wider intangibles, if you like, because mm. we talk about it being uh, very focused and on that process. But yeah. how do we get to that point? So it's, if you like, it's bridging the gap between what academic research is telling us and as a school leader being able to practically implement yeah. that. I think that it's a really, really good point. And I think things like this often get missed when we talk about education research and impact, because the impact is always on, well, how much difference does this make to student learning? That's not necessarily, I mean, that is obviously very important. It's not always the thing that we are trying to achieve. There are lots of other uh, goals, I suppose. If we take, for example, um, praise. So, you know, Every teacher will give praise to to uh, students, hopefully. Um, but then the research comes out and says, well, praise has no impact on students learning. But then they're talking about, well, praise alone is not going to have any impact on that in terms of the types of feedback that we give. But it does have the other benefits of building a relationship between a teacher and a student. And um, it may have other positive effects but just not going to have an impact or a huge impact on learning so i think i don't know if you agree there that there's something in that isn't there yes we need to be really clear on our purpose of collaboration but actually the collaboration could be a vehicle for achieving something else which is the kind of thing that you're talking about am i right yeah exactly i think that's a a great example that fits in exactly with what i'm talking about and i think there is a lot of research around organizational culture and collaboration and what an organization uh, values and is seen to value um, and the processes of getting staff to the point where they are comfortable, where there are those positive relationships. And then you can really engage staff in a meaningful way. Both Dylan William and John Hattie were talking about. And I think that's the, the, the sense um, of my tweet is okay I get that but how do we get to that point and, and where are the intangibles around culture um, and the development of that that, 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 it, that ultimately is part of achieving that so I think as you bring staff together you're working towards that but I think those building of, of relationships those conversations that perhaps are not as not as focused and not as meaningful in terms of can we really trace this back to impact yeah. on provision in the classroom and impact on pupil outcomes? Not really. But I think it's that wider view of what is part and parcel of a really strong uh, culture within a school that gets staff and leadership working together to that point where that becomes a possibility. And I thought that was quite an important point to set, set it, that in the sort of wider context of leading a school practically, working in a, in, in a school practically um, in that sense. This idea that comes through actually quite a lot of research, Boland, uh, Philip accordingly, Vivian Robinson as well, that, that has this element of teacher engagement and morale and teachers feeling valued. And I think that collaboration can, can do that. And when you engage teachers in that way, then that makes all of the, the other things in terms of the more direct, tangible, impact related aspects of collaboration possible. Yeah, I think you're right. 
And uh, thank you for raising the point, James. Great. Thank you very much, Jamie. Hello, Jenny. Hi, Jamie. Jenny, thank you very much for joining us on this podcast. We're going to talk to you about collective teacher efficacy. But before we do so, I'm just going to give you a really brief introduction. Apparently, you've been name checked by John Hattie as one of the future leaders in global education, which I think is very cool. You're an author with four best-selling books on collective efficacy and inquiry with a fifth book on the way. And your areas of interest and expertise um, include metacognition, adolescent literacy, and facilitating collaborative learning structures. And what I really want to stress at the end is as well that you've also taught for many years. Is that right? Yes, I did. I'm this classroom teacher for many years. I started my career in education about 20 years ago. Okay. And finally, um, because I'm sure you worked very hard to get this title, you are, of course, Dr. Jenny Donahue. That's correct. Thanks, Jamie. Okay, lovely. Well, Jenny, before we talk specifically about collective teacher efficacy, I'd like to take a, a step back. Um, you've done some work around identifying the supporting conditions in schools that assist teachers in achieving deep levels of implementation of, of evidence-based practices. And that's something that's of um, real interest to us. So I hope you could tell us a bit more about those conditions. Uh, sure, Jamie. Uh, my colleagues, Sue Brian, Brian Weiser and I looked at schools and school districts where implementation of evidence-based practices took place over time. Now, the schools we studied, not only did they reach deep levels of implementation, but they also demonstrated a measurable impact on student achievement. Um, one example, I'm from Ontario, Canada, and there was a district where I worked who implemented learning intentions and success criteria as the basis for effective feedback. Now, of course, we know implementation is not always immediate, and in this case, it was, it was not. But as teams of teachers and school leaders engaged in really what we call collaborative inquiry, um, it's an iterative cycle um, of identifying student learning needs and identifying evidence-based practices that teams could implement to address those needs. And with each iterative cycle, implementation really developed gradually. And in our study, we identified six supporting conditions that facilitated teachers' engagement with research in ways that translated into meaningful changes in their classroom practice. And as I said a moment ago, increases in student achievement. So those six factors included really the presence of a learning methodology, that is those cycles of inquiry, um, where people would try and test strategies and assess the impact before determining their next steps. Um, a second thing that we noted was that teachers really needed to see the modeling of strategies multiple times. They needed examples and they needed to engage in practice in order to really uh, utilize them and integrate them into their practice. Um, the third was that they needed a conduit for the research. We know that teachers are very busy. They don't necessarily have the time to really sift through those long research studies nor the inclination often. Um, and by summarizing the research and helping to unpack effect sizes and, um, you know, just that idea of helping teachers understand the magnitude of different influences and unpack the untold stories behind the numbers um, was, was something that was helpful. Um, the fourth was supportive organizational environment. Um, this took place over the course of a few years. It wasn't one of those once and done. 
the district office supported sessions in between. Teachers had release time to engage in the collaboration and full support of school leaders. Um, fifth was that they monitored and adjusted their implementation strategy. So they were very cognizant of um, that need to get to deep levels of implementation. And that was um, on the team's you know, kind of on, on their minds as they engaged in the work. And then the sixth factor was that it was really important for educators to see themselves as agents of change or influence. As they were recognizing success when they were using the strategies and they saw how the strategies were positively impacting student learning. And when teams interpreted that success through a growth mindset, that is, they realized that their efforts and the use of the strategies, those things that are really within their sphere of influence, uh, that those were the reasons for their improvements, uh, their efficacy was enhanced. Now, early on, they made attributions for success and failure to things that factors that were outside of their control, things like student absenteeism or lack of resources. But over time, they began to shift their attributions to more internal um, causes and they could see themselves, therefore, as agents of change and increase their efficacy as a result. Well, that's really interesting, Jenny. Thank you. So that sixth condition that you've described is really the kind of the theme of our of our discussion today. Um, but just before we sort of move on and, and maybe dig a little deeper into that, when you talk about deep levels of implementation, what do you mean by that as an organisation, our organisation, evidence based education? we talk about um, faithful adoption and intelligent adaptation of um, when it comes to implementation of, of other practices and strategies. It will be really interesting to hear what you mean by a deep level of implementation. Well, I often turn to, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with an article by Cynthia Coburn, and in it she, I think it's called Rethinking Scale um, and looking at implementation of evidence-based practices in education. And she defines scale. Um, she says in the article that we often think of scale as just spread, right? How many teachers are adopting the approaches? But in the article, she asks us to really reconceptualize our definition of scale to include the notion of not only spread, but depth, meaning, mm -hmm. you know, to what degree the fidelity of the strategy is being utilized in practice. Things like sustainability, um, you know, if you know, is it internally um, mandated? Is it externally mandated or are people sustaining mm -hmm. it internally over time? And then her fourth dimension of scale is what she refers to as ownership. And that notion of um, really shifting our beliefs, you know, about both the fidelity of the strategy and our capability of, uh, you know, utilizing it in our practice in a regular way. So when I think of implementation, I often go to those four dimensions and, these four dimensions were present in, in these schools that we studied. Okay, and you mentioned that article there, if anyone wants to sort of um, to dig a little bit deeper into that around implementation, is there anywhere that you'd recommend that people look for um, the conditions you described there, the six conditions? Um, yeah, there is a, an article, the ones that I referred to from our study has been published and it was published, uh, open access um, in education sciences, and it's called Implementing High Leverage Influences from the Visible Learning Synthesis, Six Supporting Conditions. So I think if people Googled that, they'd be able to find it. 
Fantastic. And we'll also provide a link to it on uh, the page on our website where we publish this blog. OK, Jenny, thank you so much. Um, if we go on to the, the next sort of line of questioning, if you like, um, I well, you may um, or may not know that in the previous episode of this series um, of podcasts on collaboration, um, we had John Hattie on and he spoke about collective efficacy. And in the same episode, Dylan William also provided his thoughts on the reported effect size of collective efficacy, collective teacher efficacy, which is pretty phenomenal. Um, and there was definitely a difference in their views, I would say, in terms of what can be said about the potential effects of collective efficacy and how it can be, or how it should be or how it has been measured. Um, I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, thanks, Jamie. I did listen to your podcast. I enjoyed it very much. I listened to both John Hattie's and Dylan Williams' comments. And I was actually surprised by a few things that Dylan Williams said. Um, first, he noted that the relationship between collective teacher efficacy and student achievement was correlational and not causal. But then he went on to claim that the direction was the opposite. He said, in fact, high levels of student achievement causes collective efficacy, which surely means he is saying it is about causation. And then he confused the 0 0.40 average Meaning, you know, I think he said something to the, uh, the degree that kids would advance five times because of one factor. And John Hattie has never said it's one factor and we've never said it's causal. Um, collective efficacy has such a high effect size, that idea that it really reinforces the claims from visible learning about what makes the difference. And that is when teachers and leaders adopt the mind frames of valuing collaboration and our evaluators of their individual and collective impact, that's really what makes the difference. And that is when collective efficacy becomes manifested in the work of school improvement. The um, Albert Bandura who says efficacy beliefs influence how teams think, feel, motivate themselves and behave. And a high sense of efficacy results in greater effort, even when faced with setbacks. Uh, teams who have a high sense of efficacy set higher goals, they create more mastery opportunities for students. They're more likely to include parents in meaningful ways in their child's education. And teams with a sense of efficacy achieve deeper implementation of evidence-based strategies. And that's why collective efficacy influences student achievement. Now, I agree we need to care about causation and correlation, but the visible learning message is to build an explanation across many factors to lead to causation which is more than a legitimate measurement strategy. Now, the other thing that Dylan said that surprised me is when he questioned whether you can influence collective efficacy directly. There are many studies that demonstrate that collective efficacy is malleable. Um, Roger Goddard in 2015 with his colleagues showed that school leaders indirectly influence student achievement by setting up the conditions for teachers' collaborations to focus on instructional improvement. And in that study, um, he showed that collaboration directly predicted an increase in collective efficacy and collective efficacy predicted an increase in student achievement. So there are uh, lots of studies that show that you can influence efficacy beliefs directly. 
Okay, well, thank you, Jenny. I'm wondering now whether we need to get Dylan back on the podcast and we're just going to have a series of podcasts where people go back and forth. Those are really um, fair points. And I mean, I think as with many things, you know, it, it's not all black and white, is it? And there's there's kind of, there's always a, a nuance to, to, to these things. And it's really good to talk them through, actually, and to hear your points there. Um, so in the podcast, and it's great to hear that you listen to it, um, John talks about focusing on impact as a way to help efficacy manifest itself. And there was definitely a kind of a, to use the phrase that I hope most people are familiar with, a, a chicken and egg kind of situation. Um, so can you talk to us about what does that look and feel like on the ground, as it were, in a school? How does it manifest itself? Yeah, definitely. So when I think of the chicken and egg, I go back to the work of Albert Bandura, and he used the term when looking at collective efficacy and student achievement, he used the term reciprocal causality. You know, as one influences the other, as collective efficacy increases student achievement, as that student achievement continues to um, increase, then it boosts collective efficacy. So it really is like a chicken and an egg, I guess, kind of dilemma. Mm. Um, but thinking about how does how to help efficacy manifest itself, I come back again to the early work of Albert Bandura, and he identified four sources that shape efficacy beliefs, and mastery experiences are the number one source, and that's that idea. Um, and I come back to that study, and I referenced um, the school teams in Ontario, Canada. As people see that their efforts are making a difference, as they see that they're meeting with success, they're having a successful performance accomplishment, um, that's a source of efficacy, shaping information. Um, and when teams realize again and interpret that through a growth mindset, um, then they come to build their efficacy um, through those successful experiences. So helping teams make that connection between their effort and results would be an important aspect of, you know, leadership practices for school leaders. Uh, the second source of efficacy shaping information is vicarious experiences. When teams see others who are faced with similar challenges and or opportunities meet with success, they start to think, well, if they did it, then surely we can do it as well. And so I think that the work around um, setting up the conditions for teachers to observe each other um, vicariously so that we can, you know, understand uh, and see improvements, um, that that is an efficacy shaping source. Um, there's a couple others that Albert Bander identified, and, and that is really um, social persuasion when teams are convinced by a credible and trustworthy other that they constitute an effective team that um, contributes to their beliefs about what they're capable of accomplishing. And the fourth source is really positive emotions and feelings contribute to our efficacy when we take risks and, you know, the resulting feelings of excitement and joy um, come upon us. And, you know, if we think of that at a collective level, I call it collective flow, um, then that is a, a source as well that contributes to enhancing efficacy. And some of the things that you talk about there make me think that good teachers are doing this kind of thing with their students, aren't they? So, there, there is an approach here where, you know, it can help students to have um, to, to feel success, um, you know, and, and some of the things that we might do with our assessment practice, for example, can help with that. And through metacognition 
and self-regulated learning, um, which I know you're you're an expert on as well. I just recognise that the the some of the things that teachers do with their students to help their students are some of the things that sort of need to be built in to manifesting um, recognising their own efficacy. Is that fair to say? Oh, absolutely. So these sources, the four sources that I just spoke of, um, they they work at all levels. So those are the sources that would influence an individual student's sense of self-efficacy. Those are the sources that would influence a teacher's sense of self-efficacy and collective teacher efficacy, but also leadership efficacy. So when you know we set up our students to have successful experiences and help them attribute that to their efforts and strategy use, that could boost student efficacy. Same with teachers and leaders. When our school leaders have success early on, um, you know, it helps to establish a sense of efficacy for for leadership as well. Okay, and maybe to to finish on, um, have you where where have you seen this done well, and and how is it done? So it strikes me that it, it's something that definitely needs to be built into a school's culture. But what kind of structural uh, mechanisms or, or or sort of frameworks might might there be that kind of really um, sort of brings this to life or or be, makes it a living breathing thing within a school? That's a great question. So um, John Hattie, Tim O'Leary, and I have identified some enabling conditions that, if they're in place, are likely to foster a sense of efficacy. These have been identified through research studies. And there are five of them. And I think that the first one I'd like to note is teacher empowerment. Um, there's a clear and strong relationship between the degree of teacher leadership in schools and collective efficacy. And um, so we need to ensure that we provide opportunities for teachers to lead the work of school improvement in authentic ways, you know, by giving them uh, voice and decision making power over issues related to school improvement. Um, second enabling condition is goal consensus. We know through research that there's a relationship when teachers have um, consensus on goals, when they're clear on what the goals are and they, they have a voice in shaping those goals, it leads to a sense of efficacy. Cohesive teacher knowledge is another of those enabling conditions. And that really refers to the degree to which teachers have more intimate knowledge about each other's work and where they um, come to agreement about what constitutes effective assessment and um, instructional strategies. And of course, those are all built through a fourth enabling condition, which is embedded reflective practices. Um, cycles of inquiry, for example, um, in the visible learning world, they call it an impact cycle. And it's really where people are collaborating and focusing their collaborations on instructional improvement, coming together to reflect on their practice for the purpose of improving it. And then the final enabling condition is around supportive leadership. Um, and this is where, you know, we know our leaders need to support the work by ensuring that teachers have the time to collaborate, where teachers have a, a you know, fostering a, a, an atmosphere of trust, um, psychological safety, and really making sure that teachers have the materials and tools that they need to, to do their work. And so those are the five enabling conditions. And actually, these are the ones um, that my co-author, Stephanie Height, and I write about in the book that was just released. Ah, perfect. Okay. 
Well, um, Jenny, that's that's been really interesting, and and thank you so much for really kind of bringing to life this idea of collective teacher efficacy and sharing the experience of um, the work and the work of your colleagues. Well, thank you for having me, Jamie. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Thanks, Jenny. Take care. Hello, Kat. Hi, Jamie. Good to talk to you this morning. Thank you. Thanks for joining the podcast. Um, I got in touch, Kat, because you wrote uh, an article in Schools Week about collaboration, which, of course, is the theme of this little mini series of podcasts. And so uh, you very kindly agreed to have a, a chat with us today about some of the things you wrote about. So if it's OK with you, I'll dive in with some questions. Of course. Yes, please do. OK, so I always like to start off from the sort of very beginning and to take things back to basics. What is your definition of collaboration? I think that's a, a really good question. And as a, uh, a former English teacher, always very interested in definitions and language as well. And I know that collaboration is a term that's thrown around a lot. It can be a bit woolly, a bit nebulous. Um, and that can kind of mean that sometimes people are a bit dismissive of this notion of collaboration. But I think it's a really important idea. And if you look at the dictionary definitions, there's there's quite often a sense of there being something tangible being produced at the end of collaboration, that it's this idea of working together to produce something. I don't think that's necessarily uh, has to be the case when we're thinking about collaboration between teachers. Um, actually, just having time to to talk and share ideas rather than necessarily aiming to produce something tangible can be really valuable. If we look at research like research from Spillane and colleagues who find that um, higher performing teachers uh, are those who tend to seek advice from others more uh, and, and work from things like Jackson and Brugman, who find that just becoming uh, that working alongside highly effective colleagues can lead to teachers themselves becoming more effective. That's not necessarily about sort of tangibly producing something together. It's about that effect of, of working alongside, learning from discussing with talking with colleagues mm. um, and I think that's really sort of important so I guess that's why I think that it's it's not just about always very tightly structured collaboration there's also some interesting work again from uh, uh, James Spillane and, and his colleagues who looked at school layout and found that um, that really matters in terms of chance encounters that that when we're thinking about the more informal unplanned collaboration having a classroom near to somebody else can lead to these kind of chance discussions and development opportunities, which again are not really focused on producing something or any particular goal, but can still yeah. really support teachers. Um, having said that though, I, I do think it's about more than just kind of having teachers doing the same thing at the same time. There does need to be a, a real sense of kind of productive engagement and interest in learning from each other and using and building on each other's expertise. Of course, there are really specific kinds of collaboration as well. So things like coaching and mentoring models, um, approaches around research, learning communities, journal clubs that that are really structured. But really, it's this kind of continuum um, from from much more loose and informal ways of, of just spending time talking and discussing and developing together through to really structured models. OK, brilliant. Thank you, Kat. Um, I think over the podcast series, it's been really interesting. Actually, we've heard from um, the likes of Dylan William, who is very much, you know, we don't have collaboration for the sake of collaboration. And if one person can do the job, then why involve other people? But there is definitely, it seems to me, this this other um, these other elements or conditions whereby you're you're building relationships or you have a, a sort of a feeling of, of uh, shared goals and aims. And this idea, I think that you were talking about there, sort of chance encounters, sometimes the most sort of 
productive, useful conversations are those sort of corridor chats that you didn't plan, but you bumped into someone and, you know, a conversation came about and um, you helped each other as a result. Yeah, it's it's not a clear picture, is it really? No, and I don't think it needs to be either. Actually, I think we need to recognise that there are different forms of collaboration and different layers and levels of collaboration. Some of those are more sustained, some more short term, and those have different purposes. And of course, the impact of those will be different. Exactly. It's the purposes. It all comes down to the purpose. That's a really good point. So what do you think are the preconditions for effective collaboration to be able to take place? I quite like the way that Van Grieken and colleagues um, group these together in in a uh, in a review that they did of research around collaboration, they talk about there being sort of three areas and that's personal, structural and group preconditions. And the, the personal characteristics are really around the individual's willingness to collaborate, their belief that it's important and valuable. And I think that's a really crucial one that, that can be missed, that you can build all of the right structures in the world to enable collaboration. But if you haven't got the kind of culture or belief in the individuals in that group that it's a worthwhile activity, you're not going to have productive collaboration. I mentioned there also this notion of kind of structural characteristics. Of course, again, you can have teachers who are very willing to collaborate, but if there isn't the time and space and opportunity to collaborate, that can mm-hmm. be a real problem. It's not going to happen. And I think it's a, a real issue that we're seeing at the moment. Of course, the, the nature of social distancing, of uh, remote learning means that the kind of collaboration face to face opportunities, at least, are, are very limited. Uh, but even in um, even in more normal times, I think it can be a challenge to have have the time and space to do these kinds of collaboration just because there are so many things that teachers are busy doing that it, it often ends up being a little bit lower down the priority list. When you have department meetings, they'll tend to have a kind of very strict agenda of lots of specific things that need to be gone through that don't necessarily um, mm. include collaborating in, in that true sense. Um, and they, they also talk about this notion of group characteristics, which is just thinking about things like group size, um, the blend of skills and knowledge that exists within the group and the relationships and culture um, that actually just sticking a group of people together doesn't necessarily lead to effective collaboration. We know from looking at things around professional learning that and I'm, I'm sure lots of us have experienced this, too, that if the group is too big, actually, you can feel like you're not really getting involved. But equally, if it's too small, conversation can get a bit stilted, um, that it's useful to have a, a kind of blend and balance of different skills and knowledge um, there's been some interesting work looking at sort of pairing teachers up with complementary um, strengths and weaknesses for example um, so that there's a real sense of learning from each other and developing together uh, but yes that kind of sense again of relationships and culture which comes back I think to personal characteristics is key mm. as well believing that it's worthwhile wanting to be there that kind of uh, the point that you made around Dylan William I think um, I can imagine kind of forced collaboration where you're just bringing uh, a bunch of teachers together and saying right come on collaborate because collaboration is important uh, yeah exactly that point that if you think well I could just do this much quicker on my own that becomes you know something that's frustrating a waste of time and unlikely to yeah. be productive and it is a good point. It's a bit like saying, let's have some organised fun, you know, let's collaborate, you know, let's get together and collaborate. So there's got to be, it seems, both formal opportunities and informal opportunities for collaboration to, to happen. And they need to be structured in a different way, depending on what that purpose is. And so that leads me on to the next question. In your Schools Week article, you say that opportunities for teacher collaboration are really a key feature of school environments where teachers um, have higher job satisfaction and they continue to develop their effectiveness over time. There is this kind of culture of, of, of development. So why is this? I think that there are probably broadly 
two reasons for this. And one of them links back to a point that you've made already yourself, that actually collaboration is in and of itself can be enjoyable when it's not forced. You know, we are social creatures. We like the chance to work with others, um, to spend time with others, to have conversations. And teaching is a very sort of strange profession in in that regard, that you're, you've got eyes on you the whole time, your class of 30, your class of 35, maybe in some cases, uh, all there watching and you have to be constantly sort of switched on. And yet it can also be quite isolating because you aren't spending time with other adults in the same way that you might um, in an office job or, or other roles. So those kind of bits of time that you have together with other teachers are really, really valuable. Um, I certainly felt that when I was teaching that sometimes you don't really know quite what's going on in anyone else's classroom. And you think, am, am I doing the right thing? What are other people doing? And, and you know, that that real sense of um, coming together um, is really crucial. So I think, you know, that will in itself, having the chance to collaborate, will contribute to the job satisfaction, um, will contribute to people enjoying the environment they're in, and, and in, in turn, that kind of contributing to retention. But also, I think, um, from what we know from work by Matthew Romfelt and other colleagues, um, that the opportunity to collaborate is associated with schools having higher gains in pupil attainment. Uh, there seems to be a sense that it helps teachers to develop their practice and to be more effective and um, ideas that, of course, teachers working together, discussing assessments, outcomes, um, how to help and support their pupils uh, likely to to mean that they can share sort of expertise and what's working well. And of course, that all really helps. And building on that, I think one of the reasons we know that teachers go into the profession is thinking that they'll be good at it and wanting to make a difference. The the research uh, Why Teach from uh, LKM Co now CFEY looks at that in detail. And if you know that you're doing a good job, that in turn relates back to your job satisfaction, retention. Mm. Um, and we also know, again, from work like Kraft and Pape's work, that uh, the longer you're in a, a profession, in a, in a strong professional environment, you're uh, effectiveness increases and so you get this kind of virtuous cycle of uh, effectiveness, um, confidence, self-efficacy, uh, job satisfaction and retention and, and that's really positive and, and where you haven't got that in place that's a bit problematic. I think that kind of also doesn't just work at an individual level which is where collaboration comes in again. You've got this sense of collective teacher e efficacy which I know is something that's being sort of talked about quite a lot recently um, that it's not just believing that you as an individual can do a good job and are an effective teacher it's the sense that you and your colleagues you and the staff across your school believe that you can collectively make a difference and do a good job for the pupils you work with and that relies on trust and autonomy and uh, ability for you to kind of work and collaborate with colleagues in turn so although collaboration is key of course it on its own is not enough if we look again at Kraft and Pape's work or Sam Sims work around um, teacher job satisfaction they also highlight things like opportunities for professional learning um, aspects around workload and things like that so all of these things kind of come together I think collaboration is just one of the features of an environment where teachers can flourish. Uh, are there any particular areas of collaboration that you've come to find are kind of more impactful than others? I think um, this actually again comes back to that question of, of purpose that obviously a lot of um, the effectiveness research is all focused on improving uh, pupil attainment and wanting to sort of link directly to that and, and fairly unsurprisingly there seems to be a sense that where the collaboration is focused around um, supporting pupil achievement around raising attainment about looking at outcomes of both uh, right. formative assessment and summative assessment that's yeah. probably more likely to lead to changes in instruction and approaches that will in turn lead to pupil attainment but again we've made the point that part of the value of collaboration is is in just 
the collaboration opportunities yeah. to feel like you're learning from colleagues and, and you have a kind of uh, sort of wider environment that you're working in. And so that in itself, of course, is valuable and might have slightly different focuses. Kat, um, I don't know if you'll have um, an answer to this, but it, it just strikes me that I would like to sort of explore whether in this prolonged period of remote learning, are teachers collaborating less? Are they actually collaborating more? Um, and how are they doing it? I think that's a really great question, actually. And of course, some of the things that we would think of as typical collaboration are happening less um, with you know, just the realities of, uh, of school timetables now, people teaching remotely, um, needing to maintain social distancing. But one thing that in some ways I see as a positive of uh, the current situation is that teachers have been forced to collaborate uh, around kind of sharing and developing resources because the reality is that kind of converting your curriculum to to be delivered online everyone doing that individually is just not possible and so we've seen within schools of course people sharing out these tasks but we've also seen a huge amount of kind of sharing and collaboration across um, social media more widely people really being willing to uh, to sort of work together to do the best that they can obviously at a kind of uh, national level we're thing, seeing things like um, like Oak as a, a solution to sort of providing things that teachers can use and build on and develop themselves um, but that kind of sense of actually we've got to work together to solve these challenges it's just not manageable to be doing all of these things on our own is something that I think is quite positive and, and has potential positive implications around teacher workload going forwards. Um, in terms of maintaining sort of professional learning it's something that we've been looking at really carefully at the Charter College of Teaching, our programmes that we run typically have a face-to-face -face element and we know how much the participants value that, the opportunities to network, collaborate, learn from, be challenged by people uh, working in very different settings to their own. But um, obviously that's not been possible in the current context. So looking at how we build powerful online learning experiences that still enable collaboration in different ways, whether that's uh, sort of mm -hmm. live through breakout groups on, on uh, Zoom meetings and things like that. Um, David Weston at Teach Development Trust does a fantastic job of using breakout rooms and discussions on his CPD Connect Up series, um, a really great model there. Um, but also those kind of uh, more asynchronous opportunities for collaboration through sort of forums and discussion, recognising the pressures that exist on teachers time um, so that's been something that we've needed to really focus on and we've we've seen actually just the huge appetite for um still continuing to collaborate we've seen greater numbers than ever on the webinars that we run we're we're launching a new um online program um leading to a certificate in evidence-informed practice that we've seen huge sign-ups for because people are really keen to still be learning connecting and developing together um which yeah. i think is just really exciting and, and in conversations that we've had people have said actually you can't just spend your whole time thinking and worrying about the current context of what do we do with all of the pressures that exist yeah. um, that, that thinking about talking about learning about something outside of that is really really crucial as well. Okay Kat thank you so just finally then um, to wrap up our quick chat what are your key takeaways your top tips if you like for collaboration? I'm going to try and offer one for teachers and one for school leaders but they're very much linked together um, and really it's this point that it does make a difference we, we have lots of strong evidence that suggests that uh, teacher collaboration is a really powerful feature for helping uh, in time to improve pupil outcomes, that it's helpful for uh, supporting teachers. And it does make a difference. But of course, if we want it to make a difference, we need to make sure that teachers are bought in. And as school leaders, we need to make sure that we're enabling it and truly valuing it, not just playing lip service. And that, of course, collaboration on its own isn't going to solve all of our problems. It needs to be part of a kind of wider um, school culture that supports, develops and enables teachers. 
Thank you, Kat. That's a great end to the podcast. Thanks also to James, to Jenny, and thank you for listening. <laughs>